Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Sally Quinn, as you're about to hear, is a character, a great character. She um, rose to uh, journalistic notoriety and prominence uh, at the Washington Post as the uh, as a style reporter. She really covered the uh, Washington, D.C. social scene for many, many years. It was a big part of the scene. She ended up marrying Ben Bradley, the editor, the famous editor of the of the Washington Post, who was the editor during the uh, Pentagon Papers and, and, and Watergate. And later on, uh, got interested in faith and spirituality and started a website for The Washington Post called On Faith, And during which time she had a transformation from uh, being an atheist to uh, something else. What that something else is, I'll let her describe in, in this interview. She's also uh, got her own, uh, I would say, brand of meditation. You know, I, when I talk about meditation, mostly I'm talking about mindfulness meditation. Pay attention to your breath. When you get lost, start again. But I'm I'm always very open about the fact that uh, the, the word meditation, as you'll hear me say in this conversation, is a little bit like the word sports in that it describes a whole range of activities. And, and you're going to hear uh, a very smart person, a very interesting person talk about the kind of meditation that she's kind of designed for herself um, and also about her, her uh, transformation, as, as I said, from, from a self-described atheist into something else. Uh, and she broadly describes that something else as magic which she talks about at length in her new book, Finding Magic, a spiritual memoir, um, which is just out. So uh, without further ado, you're in for a treat. Here's Sally Quinn on her new book. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Thank you for coming on. Appreciate it. Delighted to be here, Dan. Congratulations on the new book. Well, it was two and a half years in the writing, and um, I'm now feeling postpartum depression. Uh, really? Really? Because every time I've only written one and a half books, but I, I, I'm like postpartum elation. I'm just so happy it's over. Well, you know, the, the end of writing a book is really a nightmare because yes. you're on deadline. It was horrible. But actually, I love writing, and I love the process of oh, writing. You do. Yeah. So until the last couple of months when we were under a lot of pressure, I was just really happy living in my own little writing world. It's so funny to hear you say because I hate writing I so much. You know, I said this to somebody yesterday. I was uh, interviewing, uh, being interviewed by another writer, and I said, I love writing. He said, you what? <laughs> you love writing? I mean, it's a, I can't remember which famous writer it was who said that, you know, writing is easy. You just sit down at the a computer and wait until the blood runs out of your fingers. <laughs> I feel like I'm like ripping my insides out and putting them up on the screen and then having this depression realization that it, they're not even that interesting, yeah, you know, well, over and over. Yeah, there is that. The problem is reading it again and again and again. And then you think, really? Did it, You know, any does anybody care? <laughs> That's the stage I'm at, actually, in this uh-huh. next book I'm doing, just the read through, read through, read through. Um, but I have to say, it took a lot of uh, bravery for you to write about the stuff you write about. So I, 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 it's surprising for me to hear that you enjoyed the process because you get really raw in this book. Really raw, yeah. Well, you know, um, you get to a certain age and you sort of think, I have nothing to hide. Um, there's nothing that I'm ashamed of. And um, I don't feel bad or guilty. Uh, and And... As long as I can be truthful and authentic, that's what matters to me. And it just seems to me that people respond better if you are telling the truth about yourself. And, and they, can, they can sort of – that you're more accessible that way. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't think that anything I wrote was really overly revealing. But I know a lot of my friends said, you know, I learned so much about you and there were so much, so many things about you that I didn't know and so many things you'd been through. I mean, certainly, um, you, you know, the details about um, my son Quinn's heart surgery and the so many years after that we went through when he had um, severe learning disabilities and all of that and, and my parents' illness and and their subsequent deaths, and then, of course, my husband Ben Bradley's dementia and his sort of decline and death. Um, 
And your but, frontline caregiving in that case. Yes. and uh, But the thing is that they were, the, the whole book, I mean, it is called Finding Magic, and it's, and it's really about what's the meaning of life. And, mm. of course, I had to, you know, I, I didn't write the prologue or the epilogue until I actually had finished the book because I wasn't sure what it was about. Mm. Uh, because I had started writing the book. Um, I had gotten a book contract uh, to write a book about how I had started this religion website for the Washington Post call on faith as an atheist. And then I signed the book contract, and then Ben started to his decline. And it I couldn't write. I just was undone by and and also exhausted. and I had I just had nothing to give. I didn't have any juice. And so I was unable to write. And then it was about two or three weeks after he died that I thought, I've got to write this. I have to write this. I have to get it out. And I started writing about his death um, and about his dementia and his death. And um, and I thought maybe that's where the book would start. As it turned out, that's the end of the book. Mm. Because I realized once I'd gotten to the end of the book that that's not the way I wanted to present Ben in the first. I mean, Ben was this incredible sort of charismatic, dynamic, energetic, wonderful, sexy, fabulous guy. And, uh, and a historic figure, and we a, should say. But I wanted people to see the Ben yeah. before they saw the demise. We should just explain who he is for those, for anybody who, you know, we're outside the Beltway right now. So right. Ben Bradley, editor of the Washington Post. During uh, Watergate. During Watergate. Uh, you know, you, if you've seen all the president's men, you've mm-hmm. seen him portrayed. So he, he is... A towering figure. Um, by the way, he was also tall. Yes. Well, he was six feet tall. But yeah. uh, and uh, by the way, there's going to be an HBO documentary about him coming out in November. Oh, great! And uh, and then there's a movie that Steven Spielberg is doing um, on the Pentagon Papers, and Tom Hanks is playing Ben. Oh wow! And Meryl Streep is playing Catherine Graham. So, um, but in any case, I I just decided that. Um, once I'd finished the book and then I decided to write the prologue and the epilogue, I had to figure out what the meaning of the book was, what the point of the book was. And I was on deadline, so I had about two months to figure out the meaning of life. <laughs> <laughs> but I did. I did, at least for me, you know, what what was um, meaningful to me in my life. And, and it was sort of a progression of um, once I finished writing about Ben's demise, um, I then started writing about my childhood. And what it is, is it's a spiritual memoir. It's called Finding Magic. And uh, the idea is that I took just stories from my ch- life, all the way through my life, that had some significance, that had some sort of epiphany or some uh, something that was illuminating or something that was spiritual or sacred that happened to me. That, that sort of was throughout the spiritual experience that I had um, all this time thinking I was an atheist that led to me finally after starting this religion website and studying faith, different faiths, and traveling around the world studying faiths that realized that I wasn't an atheist. And, and then I had to sort of figure out what it was that I actually believed and, and what was important to me in my life. There are so many things in the several paragraphs you just uttered that I want to follow up on, and we will follow up on them, so many beats in your biography that I want to hit. Uh, let me let me just kind of a- approach it from, given that we are at least ostensibly a, a meditation-related podcast, let me start with that angle and then see where it takes us. So I, we had lunch a couple months ago, and you mentioned to me that you'd, you had been meditating. Can you just tell me how you got into that, what your practice is, and what it's done for you? Well, um, my brother is a practicing Buddhist, and he meditates every day. And so I, I, you know, was fascinated by the process. But what really got me started was some 20 years ago, I went to a health spa in California, and they had this thing called a labyrinth, which I'd never heard of. And a labyrinth is, normally people think of it as a maze, but it's it's a, a large circle, um, and it's... Um, it isn't a maze. You walk in and out and around until you get to the center, but you don't get lost in it. And um, it's a meditation tool. And they have one on the floor of Chartres Cathedral. I think the original one was in Crete, actually. Um, but they had one in uh, Grace Cathedral in San Francisco. And this health spa had copied that one, which was copied from the uh, Chartres Cathedral. And um, so I went to this health spa, and they said, you know, you really should 
try this. And I thought, oh, that sounds too new agey. And I don't think I'm, you know. But they said, well, you know, a lot of businessmen come out here and they walk the labyrinth and they say it changed their lives. So I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. So I went up and I walked it with a number of people that evening. And I sort of liked the experience. Um, There were a lot of people walking it in, you know, in and out. And there were torches and there was music and it was nighttime. And it was it was just a very pleasant um, experience. Um, But I, I didn't really get much out of it. But the next day I went up, it was in this grove of live oak trees up on a hill overlooking the spa. And I went up in the late afternoon, and there was no one there. And so I decided to walk it on my own. The idea is that you you uh, picture something in your mind. You focus on something, a problem or an issue or something you care about um, that you want to f- focus on. And, uh, and so I started thinking about my son, Quinn. Um, I had gone to the spa because Quinn was born with a heart defect. He was sick for the first 16 years of his life, and I was in and out of the hospital. And... And during this time, he was about seven or eight. I was just exhausted, and my husband insisted that I get away. I'd never left him for even overnight, and I I just needed this. And so I started concentrating on Quinn, and I walked the labyrinth, and I ended up sitting down in the center of the labyrinth and closed my eyes, and I began to meditate. And I meditated for I don't even know how long it was. How do you define meditation in this Well, for me, um, it's just trying to – blank your mind. Um, and I can do it now. Um, at first, it was really hard because, you know, you, you, you close your eyes and you sort of try to think of nothing and suddenly everything comes mm-hmm. into your head. And a lot of people feel they can't do meditation because they just think it doesn't work. But of course, it does work. It's just that, you, you know, you do have ideas that come in your head when you meditate. But for me, I just went into almost a trance. Um, I just... I saw nothing, and I, I thought of nothing. And I, I find that impossible to do, and I've been meditating for a long time. I find that I have to focus on something like my breath, and well, then the thinking yes. comes, and I let it go, go back to the breath. No, no, but I, I, was, I was breathing. I mean, they had talked about breathing and how important it was, so I was concentrating on my breath. Oh, okay, okay. No, no, I was concentrating on my breath, but not ideas about, you know, you know, what am I going to do? I'm having a dinner party next week, and do I have to, who should I invite? It wasn't that kind of a thing. And I opened my eyes, and I looked up, and right in front of me was this huge uh, fir tree, evergreen, enormous evergreen tree that had these huge branches that looked as if they were reaching out to embrace me, right in the middle of this grove of live oak trees. And it was the only tree that was not a live oak tree. And I looked at this tree, and I thought, that is Quinn. Quinn is different from all of the other kids. I mean, he had severe learning disabilities, and he didn't have any friends, and, you know, and he was sick. And I thought, that's Quinn. He is not like the other trees, but he is more beautiful than all the other trees. And just at that moment, I knew that Quinn was going to be okay. And um, it just I just never felt so happy in my life. I just, I was transcendent um, in in my feeling of just bliss. Um, and so I became a devotee of the, the labyrinth. And the following year, we were, I, I had made a reservation to come out, mainly because I wanted to walk the labyrinth again. And Quinn was scheduled to have a test at Children's Hospital. Um, and it was a uh, like an IQ test. And so I said I was going to postpone it. And Ben said, look, you know, there, there's nothing you can do. I'll take him to the test and you go on out there. So I said, okay. But at the moment that he was taking the test, I decided to go up to the labyrinth in the middle of the day, the same moment. And I walked the labyrinth and I sat there alone in the middle of the labyrinth, focusing on Quinn and breathing and meditating um, for the whole hour that I knew he would be taking the test. And when I came back, they called us in and um, for the report, and they were very grim-faced. And the doctors said, you know, we're sorry to tell you, but he did really badly on the test. He just, he just didn't score at all. However, the one really interesting thing is that he scored higher on one part of the test than anyone we have ever tested. And I said, what was that? And they said, the maze. <laughs> So um, after that, um, I was sort of blown away. And Ben built me a labyrinth in our uh, farm down in the country. Um, 
for a birthday Christmas present, and he had the same guy who did the one at Grace Cathedral come out, and it's a 50-foot in circumference, and it sits on a hill overlooking the St. Mary's River. And it's unbelievably peaceful and beautiful. And I go and meditate. I go there. I walk the labyrinth every time I'm there. And sometimes I'll go and sit and meditate for hours. I don't even know how long I'm there. Sometimes it's a couple of hours. Sometimes I'll be 15 or 20 minutes. It just depends. But one day I was in the center of the labyrinth, and I was meditating, and I lay down sort of with my arms and legs out, and all of a sudden this little plane came over, and I started circling around and around and around, and I thought, they think I'm dead. <laughs> There's this dead person lying down. <laughs> but I, I just find that it gives me a sense of clarity that nothing else does. It's different from prayer, but I, I just feel I always come away with something when I walk the labyrinth. And now um, I'm on the board of Children's Hospital because children, Ben Quinn was at Children's Hospital for so long. In which city? In, in Washington, D.C., okay. yeah. And we just uh, built a healing garden upstairs on the roof of the hospital, and, and I got them to put a labyrinth up there so that parents and children can walk the labyrinth. Um, and, you know, there are a lot of hospitals ha- who have, which have them now and lots of churches, too, because people just find them. The National Cathedral in Washington has two labyrinths that they put out um, once a month and have labyrinth walks and music and at night and candles. Get a little geeky and granular with me on what you do with your mind as you're walking the labyrinth and how that's different, if at all, from the sort of seated or lying down meditation that you do when you reach the center. Well, usually what I do is I focus on something um, like Quinn's health or Ben's health or after Ben died. Um, you know, it, I was sort of in this bubble of grief for at least a year where I and I would walk the labyrinth and I would just concentrate on the grief and how I could deal with that grief how I could get on with my life because there were times when I didn't feel I wanted to or could. So I start the labyrinth, and and I actually, in my labyrinth, it's surrounded by river stones, and I've asked all of my friends to give me some trinket or something that belongs to them that has no monetary value but that is meaningful to them, you know, like a coin or a whatever it might be. And I've buried all of these things around the labyrinth so that I've, I have this sense of feeling totally supported by all of my friends. Um, I have a little thing of my mother's ashes there and my father's buffalo nickel for when, from when he was in Korea and he was had commanding officer of the buffaloes. He was Buffalo Bill. And um, I have things from Quinn and Ben and, and my close friends. And so when I... St- start at the labyrinth, it's just I, I sort of have this little ritual where I kind of embrace all of my friends and um, and sort of ask for their support. And then I will focus on whatever it is, whether it's Quinn's health or Ben's health or my grief or um, something. And, and and so I walk, you walk very slowly um, as you go into the labyrinth and you just very slowly and very methodically just focus on what it is, you know, whether it's just say it's grief. Help me get over this. Help me. How can I get over this grief? How can I deal with it? How can I go on? Let me want to go on. And then I get to the center, and sometimes I'll sit down. Sometimes I'll stand up. Sometimes I'll lie down. And I'm looking out at the river and usually close my eyes and and then focus again on what it is that that I'm concentrating on that I that I want clarity about and I stay there until something comes to me some sense of clarity and I mean one day I was there on the and I opened my eyes and I looked up in the river and there were these two boats and one of them was this beautiful sailboat and it was sailing very calmly and softly along peacefully and then there was this kind of jet boat you know cigarette boat that was kind of zooming around you know the river and making a lot of noise. And I sort of thought, I want to be the sailboat. (laughs) I don't want to be the cigarette boat. You know, maybe I've been a cigarette boat earlier in my life, you know, but that's not who I am anymore. And that's not what I want to be. 
I want to be the sailboat. I want to be calm and peaceful and happy and not sort of having to get there fast and go there. So, I mean, that just gives you an idea of the kind of little moments of clarity that you have. And I'm certainly with Quinn and looking at those trees because that changed my life and it changed my whole idea about who Quinn was. You know, I came back and looked at Quinn and I thought, he is more beautiful than all of the others. He's just different. It's interesting um, to hear you describe this because clearly this practice, which has done so much for you, on the other hand, it's actually quite different from the way I would imagine your brother, the Buddhist, or me as a Buddhist slash mindfulness guy, practices what we call, quote unquote, meditation. By the way, the word meditation as has been said before, is a little bit like the word sports. It describes a whole range of activities. And so, um, but but generally speaking, the way meditation is taught today is focus on your breath. When you get lost, start again. Or focus on a mantra. When you get lost, start again. But you seem to have kind of, I don't know if this is the right word, invented a practice for yourself that is a little bit different, but uh, seems to have done a great deal for you. You know, um, I write in, in my book, um, Finding Magic, uh, about um, this book that I read, which I loved, and it's called A Religion of One's Own. (laughs) And um, I realized when I read this book that it was written for me because I have my own religion. People ask me now, what's your religion? Because I was an atheist. I'm no longer an atheist. Um, And I did travel around the world. And when I started the website, I didn't know anything about religion. My friend John Meacham, who's a religion scholar and a writer, sort of argued with me and talked me out of being an atheist and gave me a list of books to read about religion. And I read them, and then I took a trip around the world to study the great faiths. And I have been studying and thinking about religion, interviewing people for the last 11 years. And I, so what I what I've done is, um, in sort of way, cherry picked the things that I like from different faiths because there are a lot of things I don't like about religion, and certain religions, and there are a lot of things I do. That's not a word that people in organized religions like, uh, cherry picking, because they want you to just buy the whole package. Um, and so I've created this religion of my own, which works for me. And um, what I write about in the book is that it just, it's so personal. I mean, you put 3,000 people in the National Cathedral or in a mosque or a synagogue, every one of those people has a different view of God or the creator or whatever, and a different per- relationship, personal relationship with that being or deity or thing or whatever they want to call it. And um, and so I just feel that my own faith, my own religion is mine, and um, nobody has one that's like mine. And I, I, I wouldn't certainly ever um, think to tell somebody that they should believe this or they should believe that or this works or this doesn't work. I'm only saying what I've found works for me. And so I consider what I do in the labyrinth med- meditation, I me- even if I don't Um, walk the labyrinth, I meditate every day for probably 10 or 15 minutes at the least. Um, And I just feel centered. It just makes me feel calmer and happier. And um, there are just so many things that don't bother me anymore that used to bother me that don't get to me. I mean, my husband was, um, I would certainly not say a Buddhist and he would certainly not have called himself a Buddhist. Um, he did have faith. He never went to church. And the last year and a half of his life, I interviewed him at the Washington Post for my uh, website on faith. And I we had never talked about religion. I mean, he didn't like it that I was an atheist, but he never discussed it. We never discussed it. And I asked him if he believed in God, and he said yes. And I was really surprised. And I said, you know, do you think, for instance, he had been in World War II in the Pacific and, and on a destroyer, and which was probably the most dangerous assignment you could have. And, and he saw a number of kamikaze pilots, you know, coming at his destroyer, actually saw one that came so close that he could see the face of the pilot, the Japanese pilot, and as, it, as the, the plane went down. And 
I said, the fact that you survived, do you think God had a plan for you? And he said, yes, I do. And he said, I just, I can't imagine not having these beliefs. And the few times that he did pray, um, he prayed when Jack Kennedy died. Jack Kennedy was his closest friend. And he went to St. Matthew's Cathedral, which is interesting. And he was walking by St. Matthew's when Quinn was about to have heart surgery and went in and prayed um, for Quinn then. Um, but he, his form of, of, I think, religion or meditation, this is why I say probably was a Buddhist, is that he was a woodsman. And we always had a, a place outside of Washington where first it was a log cabin in, in the woods in West Virginia, and then it was um, in the woods, this farm in southern Maryland. Ben would go out in the woods at sort of 9 o'clock in the morning and come back at 5 in the afternoon. He would take some water with him, and he'd have his axe and his chainsaw and his Jeep, and he would just disappear, and he would go, and he would clear brush and cut down dead trees and burn. And um, and he described it as being mind-emptying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a form of meditation for him, and he did it all the way through Watergate. Um, before he and I were not together during the Pentagon Papers, but he did it during that. He did it all the way through when Quinn was so sick and almost died all the, all those years, and it just gave him a sense of peace. And I have to say, sometimes it was really annoying to me because he just never got upset about anything, and I would get upset even during all the stress that he'd gone through. Just never, I never once saw Ben depressed. Never in forty three years together. And I do think that working out in the woods, he had to get there. I mean, it was if he didn't get out in the woods, and and Quinn is the same way, my son. He has to get down there and get out in the woods at least once every two weeks or he starts going crazy. I mean, it's his religion, too. Um, But Ben used to have this expression that drove me crazy if I'd be upset about something. He'd say, when the history of the world is is written, this is not going to be in it. And I would sort of want to go, pow, you know. It's a great point, though. I think about that all the time. And, you know, and now that Ben is gone, um, then it's left to me to think that. Mm -hmm. And I think that way. When things that normally used to upset me – come up, I, I just keep thinking, well, when the history of the world is written, this is not going to be in it. And I mean, I, this is, I haven't written a book for a while. This is my fifth book. Um, but I just remember the last four books being crazed during the book tour, you know, and checking how many books were being sold and, you know, just being frantic the whole time. And I don't feel that way now. I'm just so calm about it. You're the sailboat. I'm on I'm the sailboat. You know, if the book does well, great. If it doesn't do well, I did the best I can. I'm proud of it. Uh, I hope it does well, but, you know, life goes on, and, um, you know, I'll write another book, and um, and I'll just be happy. I'm, I will continue to find magic in my life, um, no matter what. I want to get into your definition of magic and and this and and the fact that you say that you're no longer an atheist. But just out of curiosity, how's Quinn these days? What does he do? Uh, how old is he? How's his health? Quinn is fabulous. He's 35. Um, his fiance and her five year old daughter just moved in with him and their dog Teddy Roosevelt this last uh, Labor Day, and um, they're blissfully happy together. And he. Uh, works for the National Center for Learning Disabilities. He has his own website called friendsofquinn.com for young adults with learning disabilities, which is terrific. Um, And he he interviews a lot of celebrities who are dyslexic or have certain learning disabilities. Um, He did a wonderful interview last week with Peter Yarrow of Peter, Paul, and Mary. Um, And this young now woman, a transgender young girl, young woman, who was a, a boy and is now a girl named Emily, and has, and also she has learning disabilities and has been, you know, mocked and teased and bullied all of her life. And um, they, Peter Yarrow wrote this wonderful song for her called Don't Laugh at Me. And she has this beautiful voice. And so Quinn interviewed the two of them, and it was just magical. And they sang the song together, Don't Laugh at Me, and it made you cry. 
Um, but he, Quinn has enormous empathy for people, and I think a lot of it is because he, of what he went through, but also because he had the love of his father. Ben admired Quinn more than anybody he ever knew because he said Quinn was more strong and courageous and more resilient than anyone he knew. And, and you know, to have Ben Bradley say that you're mm-hmm. the person he most admires is a big deal. Yep. And his health is okay? His health is great. Yeah, he has a pacemaker, but... Um, He's, yeah, his health is okay. He still has learning differences, but, but he talks openly about it, and that's what he does. He works with people with learning differences. You referred to his interview with Peter Yarrow uh, and, the, and Emily as, as magical, so that gets us back to magic. Yeah, Puff, as, Puff the Magic Dragon. Exactly. <laughs> uh, uh, that, that, that's a very organic variety of magic in that case. Um, the, what do you mean when you say magic, and what do you mean when you say you were an atheist but aren't anymore? Well, um, I became an atheist when I was four, when my father was in World War II, and he liberated Dachau, and he took pictures <clears throat> of all of the bodies and emaciated people, and, and it was just, and he had scrapbooks made, and I found them um, after he came back from the war, and I was horrified. And, and where I, was this? Where did you grow up? I, well, I, I'm an army brat, yeah. <laughs> so uh, we were living in Washington, D.C. at the okay. time, but I've 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 gone to 22 schools. Wow. I never lived any place longer than a year and a half in my life. Um, and I found these um, scrapbooks, and I finally confessed to my father that I had found them. And he was upset. I didn't. You know, we didn't have TV then. I didn't know about the war. I just knew Nazis were bad people. And Daddy explained to me what had happened. And I said to him, Dad, Daddy did did God know about this? And he said, yes, he did. And I said, well, why didn't he do anything? And he said, God is a mystery. We, we, never, we don't know the answers. And I was just not only outraged, but devastated. And I cried all night long. And all I could think about was all of these little Jewish children who were praying to the same God I was and their parents for protection. And I was praying every night for God to bless me and my parents. And and everyone I loved, and that God didn't listen to them, and he let that happen. So if he wasn't going to protect them, why would he protect me? And I just realized there can't be a God. And so I stopped believing in God then. I learned the word atheist when I was eight, uh, 13, and I was actually happy to see that, because I never confessed that I didn't believe in God, but I was happy to see that there was actually this word that described there, that I wasn't alone, that I wasn't the only person who didn't believe in God. Um, but so then I started studying, you know, I, I sort of went through all the, and I write a lot of stories about moments in the book, uh, about moments in my life that, that were sort of transcendent or illuminating or had some meaning for me. Um, and then after John Meacham I, and I met and he talked me out of being an atheist, I, um, and I started studying about religion. What does that mean? He talked you out of being an atheist? Well, Did he, he talk you into believing in God? No, or? no, no. But he didn't. He said, you're not a negative person. And an atheist is a negative word it, because it means you're against something. An atheist is someone who denies the existence of God. Well, I can't deny the existence of God because I don't know. I mean, my favorite bumper sticker is, I don't know and you don't either. Um, nobody knows. And the word agnostic means nothing to me because... We're all agnostics. I mean, the Pope is an agnostic because nobody really knows. You believe, you have faith, but you don't know. Um, and so I, so then, so Meacham said, you know, go out and read all these books. He gave me a whole list, and I did, and learned something about it. Then if you decide you want to be an atheist, fine, but at least know what you're talking about. And so I began to read, you know, William James' uh, variety of religious experiences was a, was a huge eye-opener for me in terms of the different kinds of religion. And also I thought the interest, the, the confluence between psychiatry and religion was really fascinating to me. But that, that's a whole other area of exploration, but something that I've, I've really been fascinated by. But I, you know, so I came to start seeing that there were things, especially on this trip, about religion that really appealed to me. And particularly the rituals and the ceremonies, which I used to think were sentimental and mawkish and sort of embarrassing. And then suddenly now I find that I'm embracing ritual all the time. I'm, 
I mean, the, probably the most important ritual in my life was m- my husband's funeral at the National Cathedral, which I thought was transcendent. I mean, I really felt that we were in touch with the divine at that moment. Um, and so you, you, then I had to sort of figure out what I was. If I wasn't an atheist, I decided I was a person of faith because I did believe in magic. Um, and I believed, you know, I grew up in the Deep South, and in the Deep South, you know, there were people believed in my Southern McDougal family, Scottish <clears throat> members of my family believed in the occult, and they believed in the Scottish stones and time travel and psychic phenomena and palmistry and and voodoo and and tarot card reading. And so I grew up with all of that, and that was sort of, and I was also a Christian at the time. Um, but I, th- that was part of my embedded religion. That was part of what I understood, and, and I accepted it. And, and all of the women in our family have had some psychic abilities, and I do have some psychic abilities, although it comes and goes. Um, I mostly like it when it goes because it's very uncomfortable when it does happen. You mean like you can uh, sit with somebody and tell what their future is? or Well, no, no, no but just you just have flashes. I mean, I think people... I think everyone has psychic abilities, actually. I just think that some of them are more developed than others. I mean, you know, you, you know, you, you thousand, everybody's had an experience where, like, you know, they're driving along and all of a sudden they have a really horrible feeling about their child and they call, you know, the child and they find out that the child has been in an accident or is sick or something, you know. I mean, these moments of whether psychic or telepathy or whatever, you know, you where you feel when you have a really close relationship with someone. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. And so that was all magic. And growing up, that was not considered a religion. It was not considered particularly legitimate. Um, But as I grew older, and particularly when I was writing this book, I sort of had this epiphany, which is that all religion is magic. And that um, anything that you believe, any kind of faith you have, is all about faith. You have to take it on faith. I mean, faith is like this said that, you know, it's a blind man walking into a black room, a darkened room, and looking for a black cat and finding it, you know. You, 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 you're, it's something that you, you have to believe in. I mean, it's not that you have to see it to believe it. You have to believe it to see it. <laughs> and, that, and that's what faith really is. And so I realized that, um, you know, if you talk about any kind of religion or Christianity, you talk about Jesus Christ and Christ walking on water and the virgin birth and um, raising Lazarus from the dead and, and actually being resurrected and going up to sit on the right hand of God or Mohammed taking dictation from, um, from Allah uh, and writing down the Koran or, or Buddha or the Hindu religions and there are many gods. Um, that's all magic. 
Uh, and you have to believe in that magic in order to have faith in it. And that that whatever I believed, whatever part of my embedded religion, whatever part of it was magical, was no different and certainly as legitimate as any anything anyone else believes. And and you know the astrology, for instance. Um, I I once interviewed a foreign minister from an Arab country who traveled with his astrologer and. He would never make a move without him. And so many, I mean, most people in the Middle East have astrologers and in India and in a lot of countries in the Middle East and Southeast, uh, and I mean, Southeast Asia. And um, I once suggested to someone in the State Department that they have a resident astrologer on the staff because even though they may not think it's serious, it would be really smart to know what the astrologer is telling you know, the Saudi prince, when they're about to meet, you know, whether this is an auspicious moment or whether Mercury is in retrograde or whatever it, it you know, whatever it might be, that it, it would be helpful to know what this other guy is thinking. Uh, and I have uh, been to an astrologer for years, this one astrologer who I find brilliant, and, and she does more of a sort of a life map than anything else is not really pro- prognostication. But that any of these things are, I mean, astrology is uh, uh, old, and that, that people will often make fun of things um, because they're not institutional religions, and that they, they happen to be in another category, which is magic. But when you look at anything that anyone believes, um, if, 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 I mean, people will make fun of Mormons because they can't believe that Joseph Smith found the tablets, the golden tablets. But Mormonism is a very young religion. I think if if the Mormonism had been um, developed or or discovered in 2,000 years ago, people would take it more seriously. I think that new religions are things that people are more skeptical about, uh, even though they may just be as legitimate as any other faith. Um, So I ended up believing that that magic was what my religion was because I think that, and and the stories in my book are all about things that I say led me to find magic. Do you believe and, in God? Um, I believe that there is a creator, and I can't wrap my mind around the fact that there was first nothing and then something. So, But I don't have a personal God. I don't have a personal God to pray to. However, I do pray. Um, and but I pray. I it's more of of sending out good thoughts and and positive thoughts and wishes. Could be be called wishes. I mean, if somebody is sick in the hospital, you, you know, and when Quinn was sick, people would say, "I'm praying for you." And I thought, well, I'll take all the help I can get. I, I it's I don't pray to a god or a a thing or a person, but I I put out positive thoughts or positive energy uh, because I think it makes me feel better and I and and I I don't know whether it works or not that's the thing I mean I think nobody does know whether it works or not but but when we talk about magic um, and we it really ends up being about meaning and what the li- what the meaning of your life is and I had to sort of come to that conclusion by finding that the the magic that happens in my life, there are moments every single day in all of our lives that are magic, and that we don't we don't necessarily realize it or we don't accept it because we're looking for some thunderbolt or some giant thing that is transcendent or that changes our lives when there are so many magical moments all day every day. And um, I I think that uh, I know you've written about happiness a lot. And um, and I found that um, what I found was that you don't you don't look for happiness to find meaning. You look for meaning to find happiness. And that what has given me the most happy ha- most happiness in my life is finding meaning. And what has meaning been most meaningful to me is loving the people I love and taking care of the people I love. I know that taking care of Quinn and then both of my parents who were sick and then and then died and then taking care of Ben all those years and and after he died that was probably the most spiritual thing I ever did in my life and gave me more 
gave my life more meaning than anything ever has. And I was filled with love for Ben and he for me and his gratitude toward me for taking good, such good care of him was just overwhelming. And I was more in love with him the day he died than I had ever been in my life before. And, and that was just the most meaningful thing that could ever have happened. So I just, I'm just uh, approaching your thesis from my own sort of selfish standpoint, or selfish isn't the right word, but like a personal standpoint. And so I, I completely buy when you say the source of meaning is connect, interconnection, connection with other human beings. I would say in my experience that is true. Uh, also, I think there's an enormous amount of meaning to be had in just uh, living your life fully and, and instead of walking around in a fog of rumination and projection, you know, this autopilot that most of us live in. And that can be a source of magic, however you want to define it. I would define it in a non-metaphysical way, but just in the idea that, wow, actually there's a lot more uh, beauty and interesting stuff in our workaday lives than we often pay attention to. And I also think that there, through meditation practice, you can find a kind of meaning and a mystery by just looking at your own mind. Uh, that, you know, how do, who is this me that I think is so solid and stable? And how do I, how, how am I aware of all of this stuff? Who, who's taking delivery of these various packages that are coming in? The, the seeing, the hearing, the, 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 the thinking, all that stuff. Who is Dan? Um, uh, I think there's a lot of meaning and interesting stuff in there. But I do, where I draw the line, and I'm curious to get back to this with you, is I have respect for the world's great religions or even the world's uh, unsanctioned religions, including palmistry. I'm, people want to believe it as long as it's not harming anybody else. I, I have no beef with that and came to that view through many, many years of covering faith and spirituality. But personally, I have trouble believing in anything that for which there is no proof. Part of that is because my parents are scientists and my wife's a scientist, and part of it is because I just, I just constitutionally – I can't – I mean, I, if you say you believe in it, I no beef with that again as long as it's not hurting anybody. But I don't – I can't make that leap, and I'm curious how you got there in terms of being able to have faith in something that you really can't prove. Well, that's um, – I – first of all, I say this in the book that um, I accept and respect what anyone believes as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. That That's the most important thing about accepting other people's beliefs and their faith. Um, and so, um, but, and I also agree, I mean, you know, my, my argument all along, certainly about God, um, and, and a personal God, um, that I could never believe in an all-loving, all, um, sort of all-powerful, omniscient, omnipotent God, um, because, um, the issue of suffering comes in, and no one is what they call theodicy, the, the, the problem of suffering, that no one has ever in all the times that I have um, interviewed hundreds, thousands of people about God, um, no one has ever given me an answer that's satisfactory about how could a loving God allow such suffering. It just, I don't, I just don't understand it, and I don't believe it. Um, and, but, but, the interesting thing is, and I've felt the same way you have, that, you know, you've got to show it to me or else, you know, you've got to show me empirical proof. Um, but that sort of eliminates the whole idea of faith. Um, yeah, it does. This, yeah. So, um, you know, and, and I never quite knew what faith meant um, until I started thinking about things that I have faith in, like I have faith in myself and my ability to um, to care for people and to love the people I love, and uh, I have faith in my in my ability to thrive and survive, and and I am resilient. And I have faith in Quinn, and and I had faith in Ben, and. Um, um, but that's faith so in that's, the terms of confidence, right? As opposed to f- right. metaphysical faith, right? But I think that um, that w- what you're saying is that if you can't prove it, you can't believe it. Well, I can't. That's right, yeah. And that's what I said. It's not like you have to see it to believe it. It's like you you have to believe it to see it. Yeah, but how did you get there? How did you go from... How did I get there? 
because, um, well, I'm stammering and stuttering now because I'm I'm just have to figure out how I should have the answer to that, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> how how did I get there? Because but it seems it's whether or not you want to talk about how you got there or whether well, you figured that out. I mean, it just seems so important to you now. The whole book is called yes, Finding Magic. Right. So magic of a of a variety that is beyond the mundane. I actually think is plenty magical. You seem to have adopted, and I'm just curious, okay. like how, why? Okay, so I'm I'm coming there. I'm okay, getting good, there. Good. I'm getting there. I'm glad you <laughs> asked me that question because I realized that I don't care how scientific you are, um, and I don't care what a scientific genius anybody is. There is so much that science doesn't know and can't prove. I mean, you can take the telescope, you know, and you can send rockets up into the outer space and you can look as far as but the final answer that scientists don't know is where did the universe come from what is out there what's really out there so there are so many things that science can't explain yeah and and you know there there are some scientists um who are actually people of faith because they say you know there is a moment where you have to you, you know you you have to draw the line there's a moment where you can go only so far with science and then you can't explain the rest of it and so what is it so for me i think it's more of a feeling that i have i mean and that's what belief is that's what faith is that there's a feeling that i have that i can only describe by saying it's transcendent um it's a feeling of being in touch with the divine, a feeling of just incredible happiness that comes to me at certain times in my life that I can't explain, um, and that uh, and that that and no one can explain it. I mean, you can say, well, the neurons in your brain, blah blah blah, and if you put you put you know all kinds of cords and plug you into machines and everything they'll show that your brain does but 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 in the end nobody can really explain where it comes from and so i mean astrology is different because astrology they is is a science in the sense that you there are the stars and and there are the planets and they do move around and you know that the moon does affect the tides and it affects people's um the the blood and the water in your body. I mean, you know, different planets have different aspects that will affect the human being. Um, but but when somebody dra- draws a chart um, about you, um, an astrological chart, uh, the really good astrologers and the way they interpret it is more of a map of your life and who you are. It's more like going to therapy than anything else. It's just sort of saying this is who you are and this is what, you know, this is how you will you will tend to work, tend to, tend to behave, tend to, tend to live. These are the issues you're going to have, the issues that you won't have. Um, and I, I mean, that, that's more concrete to me than anything else. But, I, but the sense, the feeling that I get in these moments, um, I just, I don't feel that there's any explanation for them. When I was at Ben's funeral, um, I was in the National Cathedral. There's something just amazing about that building. And I just, every, sometimes I just go in and just sit there. Now, I'm not praying to God, you know. I I don't know what I'm doing in there, except that I just have the sense that there's something bigger than I am that, that makes me feel somehow stronger and more peaceful and more supported. And so... Um, I, I think I'm not being very articulate. No, I think you actually were being quite articulate there. I think a lot of people but, resonate but, will resonate with that. There's a feeling of mystery and being uh, having this kind of um, hard to articulate uh, a, 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 a suspicion that there's something larger and unexplained. And I guess my where I take that is like I'm comfortable with mystery. I'm intrigued by mystery, but well, I don't have to believe i don't have to like imp- uh think that there's something behind it that i can't i can't make any case for well the, my book is divided into three sections the first one is magic the second one is mystery and the third is meaning 
And it was, you know, that I grew up sort of believing in, ma- believing in magic. Mystery is when I started feeling, you know, I was looking for, for what it was, trying to figure it out. And meaning is when I realized that I had found meaning in my life. And, and that was meaning that was caretaking and love. Um, uh, George Valiant did the Harvard did the study uh, called the Grant Study. That my husband was part of with Jack. oh your husband was part of that yeah Jack I, I re- Kennedy. yeah my Jack my Kennedy. yeah my grandfather gave me that book yes. uh, when I was younger but they basically studied young men from Harvard over the course of their lives their lives and yes. most of them are dead now yeah. um, but Ben was in that study and they filled out a form uh, answering questions about their lives every year and and Valiant wrote a book about it later and he said he came to the conclusion after interviewing these people over a course of 70, 80, 90 years, um, that there was only one conclusion he came to, and that that was happiness equals one thing, and that is love full stop. And um, you can't measure love. I mean, you can't scientifically measure love. Um, I mean, to me, love was the most important thing in my life with Ben and still is now. And I think how you love is the most important thing you can do, and I can't, I couldn't live without it, and I don't know how anyone can live without it. But scientifically, how do you define love? How do you describe it? Um, You just know it. When you see it, you feel it. And so for what I believe, I mean, for what faith is, I mean, if somebody says they believe that Jesus was the Son of God, um, they believe it. I mean, they're Catholics who believe that when you take communion, um, when you put the bread in your mouth and the wine in your mouth, that it actually turns into the blood and flesh of Christ. It's called transubstantiation. And a lot of people believe that. And, I mean, the beliefs of people all around the world are extraordinary. I mean, to, and to a lot of beliefs to us are, just sound crazy. Um, but the fact is that they believe them and they have faith in them and it gives them some sense of security and some sense of support and, um, and it gives them happiness and comfort. And so, I mean, what I'm look at is something and I, and I have decided that I don't have to see it to believe it. Um, that if I know that I have a feeling of being in touch with the divine or being transcendent or a feeling of magic, um, then that's I, I don't need anything more than that. I don't need somebody writing down a piece of paper for me. Um, you know, this is what the study shows, um, and this is what love means, and maybe you love Ben and maybe you don't, but how do you quantify that, you know, scientifically? In our remaining moments, I just want to ask you about, you know, you really kind of made a name for yourself in many ways with by in Washington society. And I just would so, – so a big shift here in conversation because we've really delved into the deep end of the pool in lots of ways. But I'm just curious, are you still – are you a sailboat or a cigarette boat when it comes to – uh, dinner parties and making the scene in D.C. these days, do you no longer care? Are you still interested in it? And how are things different now under Trump than they were in the many administrations you've experienced previously? Um, well, I'm just sailing along, baby. <laughs> but do you, do you still throw parties? Oh, all the time. <laughs> all the time. And uh, there is, and, and when we talk about ritual, um, somebody said if you had, um, if you could choose one dinner party that you could go to, and, and throughout history, what would it be? And I said it would be the Last Supper because here's Jesus was a real party boy, as my friend Tim Shriver says, that almost everything in the Bible is Jesus is at a party. And, you know, what does he do right before he dies? He has everybody for dinner, and they break bread, and they drink wine, and they sit around and talk. And there's something – I actually did a, a very short-lived column at the Washington Post called The Sacred Table because, for me – entertaining, there's a certain sacredness about it, and there's a certain um, sense of spirituality about what I can't think of anything I love more than to have the people I really care about sitting around my dining room table and with lots of candles and wine and good food and talking about things that are really important to them and really sort of communing. It's, It's a form of communion, you know? And, and, and I want people to leave my house sort of feeling 
levitated, feeling affirmed, feeling honored in some way. And I mean, I think that, that happens when, when you get people who you care. And I don't invite people, I don't invite jobs to my parties. I invite the people I like. And if they happen to have jobs, fine. If they don't, fine. Big jobs, you mean? Yeah, well, you know, be, being part of the administration or a journalist or whatever. Uh, but I, I invite the people I like and that I care about. And, and people always seem to have a really good time. And, you know, I, I think when people talk about parties in Washington, they often think, oh, well, the Georgetown dinner party's set. But I think that it's very sad what's happened in Washington over the last, certainly when I first started working at the Washington Post, which is almost 50 years ago. Um, and I was covering parties, and the Republicans and Democrats would go to dinner all the time together. But, but they all live there. Now with the airplane, nobody lives there. They live in their home districts, and they sleep on their sofas at night, you know. And, or they travel back and forth to wherever, and they don't know each other. And so there's this incredible sense of rancor and and unhappiness and hostility in Washington that that never used to exist before. And of course, now it's more toxic than it's ever been before during the Trump administration. But but um, when, when I have parties, I bring people together and people always, I mean, Washington is 4% voted for Trump in Washington. And I had a, a winter solstice party, which is the 21st of December, which is welcoming in the new and it's it's the winter solstice is the darkest day of the year and so it was after the darkness comes the light and i have to say most of the people who were there were not trump supporters um but and people were still in shock that trump had been elected and but everybody came and just wanting to have a good time wanting to relax but also feeling a sense of community because there was a certain fear of what was going to happen to the country um, and and I think people left feeling we're going to be okay. We have this sense of community here, and we're all in this together. And um, nothing is going to be bad as long as we can all be together. And and um, you know when I I went off to Martha's Vineyard for the summer August and Quinn. My son lives in the house next to mine that's connected to mine. He said, Mom, I really missed you a lot this summer. And he said, you know, when you're here, it's so long. When you're not here, it's so lonely. Because when you're here, the house always seems to be filled with people and people laughing and having dinner and having a good time and having fun. And I really like that. And that made me feel great mm -hmm. because um, that's what entertaining should be about. That's what I do. And I, I don't ever have a party for no reason. It's always to honor somebody. Um, or to for something, or like the winter solstice party, you know, out of the darkness comes the light, or, you know, for someone's book, or a dinner for somebody's book, or somebody's engagement, or some whatever. So that there's always something or some reason to celebrate, or someone to celebrate. So, um, and, and I think that it's just too bad that we don't have that kind of um, social connection anymore in Washington. And, you, you know, sometimes, I mean, I invite, still invite people from from both sides of the aisle, but a lot of them don't come. It's been fun to sit here and commune with you. Thank you very it's been much. Great. Thank you, Dan. If people want to learn more about you, obviously, Finding Magic, a spiritual memoir, they can, they can go pick that up. Are there other places they should go in order to, you know, get more Sally Quinn? Well, you know, I have a Facebook page and um, I'm on Twitter. But I, I would say Amazon, because I'm pushing Amazon because Amazon owns the Washington Post, which is where I work. Um, so I would say, yes, go to Amazon or go to your local bookstores um, and pick it up. And this is a good time. I'm My lawyer represents both me and Hillary Clinton. And he said, I... I have to tell you that Hillary's book is now coming out on the same day yours is. And he said, but there's good news because she'll drive people into the store. So <laughs> what I'd like to say to people is that if you're going to go into the store, you should definitely buy my book if you're going to buy Hillary's because mine is an antidote to hers. Because once you read about how awful any campaign is, and this was the worst campaign anybody's ever been through, you're going to need some spirituality and some different outlook on life. That's a good pitch. Thank you very much. Thanks. You did a great job. Appreciate Thank it. You. Thank you.
Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter, at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost, but now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcast. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.